the phrase, love is love, has become a kind of creed in our day. It defines the word love with the word love. And your cultural orthodoxy is determined by your public affirmation of this and several other related propositions. I'd like to begin our sermon this morning by presenting two stories which I think undermine this creed, suggesting that not everything called love is love. Now, I remember back during my seminary days, uh, I was sitting with a few different sim- uh, students in a group, and uh, one girl, single in her 30s, began complaining about how hard it was to find a good man and to find love. Now, somewhere in the conversation, it came up that she was searching for love on an app called Tinder. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar, uh, Tinder is an app designed to provide immediate physical gratification, and it matches you up with others on the basis of looks alone. I kindly, in love, mentioned to her that perhaps a platform which unapologetically promotes selfishness isn't the place to find love, that serving your church would be a much better use of time and a better opportunity to find a godly man. My comment was not welcomed. Uh, The second example of love I'd like to present to you is one you're probably familiar with. Desmond Doss. He was a conscientious objector who enlisted in World War II. And because he was unwilling to kill, he trained as a medic. Now the men in his squad picked on him all the time and they considered him a pest. His own commanding officer tried to have him transferred out of his squad three times. But during the Battle of Okinawa, one of the bloodiest in all of the Pacific theater, his company was decimated by machine gun fire and mortars as they tried to storm a hill. And many of those wounded men were trapped by that same machine gun fire. Now, rather than seeking cover, which he would have been well within his rights to do, he sought the very men who hated him, including that officer, He treated their wounds under enemy fire, and he carried them to safety, risking his own life. And after he dropped off each individual man, he prayed, Lord, give me one more. By the end of the month-long battle, he had been shot four times. He had 17 pieces of shrapnel in his leg from a grenade that he kicked away from his men, and his arm had been shattered by a sniper. But by the end of that month-long battle, he had saved 75 men. 75 men who wouldn't exist today and whose families wouldn't exist today apart from his sacrifice. Let's consider the two examples. In the first hand, in the first example, love served as a kind of shorthand for finding someone who gratifies my desires. The second example wasn't concerned with finding love so much as it was demonstrating love when Doss considered the lives of his men more important than his own. Now, as we mentioned last week, Jesus is a single night away from the cross. He said at the beginning of chapter 13, verse 1, my hour has now come. And by washing the feet of his disciples, Jesus demonstrated what humble service to the body looks like. 
Well, in our text today, he wants to make his example of love an explicit command. We'll find that the highest expression of Christian obedience is to love. But as love is casually thrown around to describe all kinds of things in our own day, we want to be careful as we discuss the Christian command to love to be sure that we define love in the way that Christ means love. And with that in mind, let us read our text this morning. Pick up with me in chapter 13, verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are gathered this morning because you love us. We are gathered this morning because we love you, though our love is an imperfect love, though our love is mixed with other lesser loves. Lord, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us through your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would accompany my preaching of your word with power from on high, not in human wisdom, not in my own power, but strength from the Holy Spirit. Lord, give us ears to hear all that your word has. Encourage us with the truth of your gospel that you loved us enough to sacrifice your own son to save us from our rebellion against you. Lord, help us to celebrate your gospel this morning. And Lord, in response to your truth, help us to be a people that love, that are characterized by love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Jesus gives a new command in chapter 13. Uh, we know from last week that this is, uh, Jesus recognizes his hour has come, and so now uh, he turns to his disciples to give this new command, but he begins by talking about glory. Uh, earlier in chapter 12, he says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, glory is one of those words that you hear all the time, but rarely do we stop and try to define it. And we find that when we try to stop and define glory, it's actually really hard to define. Uh, this morning, I'm going to attempt to define glory, and yet uh, I just want to say at the outset that as we talk about glory, particularly as it pertains to the infinite God, that my attempt is going to fall short in some ways. But recognizing that, I'm going to make an attempt nonetheless. We're describing something which is beyond human comprehension. Uh, I'd like to explain it by way of an analogy. Uh, a few months ago, back in September, my wife and I and our Three kids, uh, one of them three months old. We traveled up to Maine. We'd always heard all of these great things about the beauty of Maine, uh, particularly of the Maine coast. And we spent three nights, four days, exploring Maine. We even took a boat tour to explore Acadia National Park, which we heard was one of the most beautiful places on the coast. Uh, when we got back, people asked us, what did you think of 
the Maine coast. And I said, honestly, I didn't think much of it. <laughs> and people were deeply offended by that. And he said, how can you not think much of it? And I said, because I didn't see any of it. Because the four days that we were in Maine, it rained constantly, and it was so foggy that I could not even see to this first pew there. Uh, the boat tour we took, literally all I saw was the ocean right next to the boat <laughs> for three hours. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. Did the Maine coastline cease to be one of the most incredible, visual, stunning sights on the East Coast just because I couldn't see it? No. It is in... Yeah, here's our Mainer. She's shaking her head at me. I'm sorry, Bonnie. No, it's... It's an incredible sight. It is inherently, it's inherently majestic. It's inherently beautiful. And it doesn't cease to be so just because I'm not observing it. Well, guys, when we talk about glory, God is inherently holy. He is perfect. He is righteous. He's just. He is love, is what 1 John tells us. God's glory is when he communicates his attributes, his holiness, his love, his justice, when he communicates these attributes to us in such a way that we can observe and appreciate it. That's God's glory, when what is true of God is communicated to us. That's why when you uh, remember Psalm 19, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And he, he's saying when you stare up at the stars at night, when you see a glorious sunset on the horizon, the things that God have, have made, has made, they proclaim God's glory. They reveal something about God, namely that he's powerful, that he's artistic. And so when we talk about glory, we're talking about God's perfection being demonstrated in such a way that we can observe it. So with that in mind, we turn to verse 31. And Jesus is going to use the word glorify five times here, and things can get confusing very fast. I had to stare at this for a very long time to figure out what was going on. Uh, I'm going to try to simplify it here. I think uh, ultimately Jesus is saying one thing. The cross is the ultimate expression of God's glory. The cross is his holiness, his love, his justice, his goodness, his wrath against evil, his wisdom. All of that is on display in the sacrifice that Jesus makes on the cross. The cross of Christ is the place where God most put his glory on display for the world. Now, Jesus says the cross means at least four things. Number one, it means the Son is glorified. Do you remember in chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And right after this, he says this in John 10, 17. He says, for this reason, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so in this, we're reminded that no one was forcing Jesus to go to the cross. He laid down his life voluntarily. 
He reminded us in Matthew's gospel that at any moment he could have called down legions of angels to rescue him from the hands of men, but he didn't. He chose to endure the shame and the pain and the brutality of a Roman execution, embarrassed before his friends and his enemies. He chose to sacrifice himself because he loved sinners. All of this begins and ends with the love of God. And this is the grand irony of Christian, Christianity. That the Son is glorified through the shame of the cross. The second thing we learn in these two verses is this. That God the Father, it's a very Trinitarian passage, God the Father is glorified in God the Son. It says God is glorified in Him. You see, Jesus is the perfect revelation of God the Father. God is invisible. We can't see Him, but Jesus is God made visible. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And that's why Jesus says, if you want to know what God the Father is like, look at me. He says, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, he says, you have seen the Father. And so Jesus is glorifying God the Father because he's revealing what God is like. And God is the kind of God who gives himself to save those who have rebelled against him. And so Jesus is glorifying God the Father all the way to the cross. The last two things we notice here is this, that the Son is seeking the Father's glory and the Father is seeking the Son's glory. God is glorified in the Son and God will glorify the Son in his obedient death, resurrection, and exaltation. So that uh, there's no higher name than the name of Jesus. All right, we made it through all the glory talk. Jesus is explained the glorification. He now reminds them why he's leaving and that they cannot follow him. Uh, Before he does leave them, though, remember, he's less than a single night from the crucifixion. He wants to describe for them what life in his new community called the church should be like. What is the one characteristic that should characterize the church? He says it is love. So pick up with me in verse 34. He says this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus gives a new command. What is it? It's very simple. Love one another. Who's the you? Well, it's a a plural you. He's speaking to his disciples. So the command is that Jesus' disciples love Jesus' disciples. That the church loves the church. That you love one another. Sometimes we can become over-sentimental when we talk about love and say, well, why don't we just love everyone? Well, certainly there is a sense in which we are called to love everyone. Uh, Paul says, do good to everyone, but especially unto the household of God in Galatians. Jesus goes as far as to say, love your enemies. So yes, there's a sense in which we're called to love everyone. But there is a primary responsibility that we have as the church to love the church. 
And among those who make up the Catholic or universal church, we have a primary responsibility to the members of our local church. Now, as we talk about the kind of love that Jesus expects of his people, we'll find that it's not the kind of love that you can just disperse indiscriminately. Take marriage as an analogy. When you marry someone, you enter into a covenant relationship before God with that person. You are committing to love that person in a special and unique and exclusive way. In fact, the love that you find in marriage is beautiful in part because it is exclusionary. Certainly I can love others in certain ways, but I'm not going to love others to the degree that I love my wife or I'd be in trouble. And that's a good thing. Because I'm not even capable of giving out that level of love to many people. It would have to be watered down. So brothers and sisters, we recognize that we are in a covenant relationship with one another before God. And he's called us to a special self-sacrificing love for one another while we're here on earth. You say, okay, pastor, I'm following you. Why does Jesus say it's a new command? I know my Old Testament. I know that there's love commands all over the Old Testament. And you're right. Uh, Jesus, when he summarizes the law, he says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. So what's new about this? Well, I think Jesus is getting at a few things when he calls it a new commandment. First... Jesus is creating a new community called the church. Uh, The church is made up of believing Jews and it's made up of believing Gentiles, which is new. And the church has the law, but the church is not under the law. And so he's making explicit what should characterize this new community of mine more than anything else. It should be love. So he's beginning a new community under a new, com- a new covenant. The command is given to a new standard, the cross. And as we will discuss in our second point today, this command is empowered by a new indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But we'll get there eventually. Now right after giving the command, Jesus is finally going to tell us what it is that he means by love. Now, this is important. I began our sermon today by suggesting that often what is called love isn't. In our day, love is often a shorthand for my right to pursue whatever it is that I feel I want and I deserve. That's not a Christian conception of love. It's entirely self-focused on pleasing selfish desires. Many of us, if we take that attitude into our marriages, we can find uh, that we only think of what this other person should be doing to make me happy, what I deserve. And if this person no longer makes me happy and I no longer have the fuzzy feelings that I had when we were dating, then this marriage might be something, but it's certainly not a marriage based on love. Well, friends, we run into merit, we run into... uh, problems in our marriages. We run into problems in all of our relationships when we start thinking in terms of you must because I deserve rather than I will because I love. Well, I also gave a second example of love. Desmond Doss was not concerned 
with himself when he went to go rescue his fellow soldiers. He wasn't concerned with whether they deserved his help after ridiculing him all those years. He understood love as a verb, something to do rather than love as a noun, something to be acquired. And so he loved his comrades by risking his own neck to save theirs. Jesus says this, just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. And it's here that we find the standard of Christian love. And the standard of Christian love is also the motivation for Christian love. Consider what Jesus says in John 15, 13. He says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is the standard of Christian love. To love Jesus, to love those who Jesus loves more than you love your own life. I mean, this is, this is bonkers, guys. This is crazy. I might give my life for my family, my blood, or perhaps a dear, dear friend of mine. But for somebody at my church, this is where the gospel comes in. And I might add that this is insane unless we're thinking about what Jesus has already done for us. Because we find that the standard of Christian love is also the motivation. That Jesus is calling us to do what he has already done for us. Let me ask you this. Were you deserving of Jesus' love? Listen, as Christians, we know that you were as selfish as anyone without a righteous thought toward God or what he expected from you. You were a sinner lost and blind, destined for God's judgment, but then you heard the good news of a man named Jesus. Jesus lived how you were supposed to. He was the only perfect man. And though he earned all righteousness before God, he chose to lay down his perfect life on the cross because he loved you. And God opened your eyes to understand this truth and you trusted in the man who loved you enough to give himself for you. Then you understood the command to love as Jesus is loved. Now I recognize that's not all of us here today. I want to plead with you if you don't consider yourself to be a Christian that you are missing out on the greatest love you could ever experience, which is the love of God toward his enemies. That day on Hacksaw Ridge, those soldiers were pinned down by machine gun fire and slowly bleeding to death. Unless Doss had chosen to risk his life for them, they certainly would have perished. But you see, as amazing as that story is, it pales in comparison to Christ. If you are outside of Christ, and I say this with love, you are spiritually bleeding out and helpless. You cannot earn your way to God. But the good news that we talked about in the catechism is that there is a Redeemer. You can be reconciled because Jesus chose not just to risk his life, but he voluntarily laid down his life on the cross, and so he bore the punishment for sinners. That's the good news of Christianity. He paid the penalty that you owe. And when you believe that truth with all of your heart, you come to recognize that there's nothing that Christ could ask of you that would ever compare to what he's already done for you.
Christian love is so much better than worldly love. But it means that Christian love is a costly love. Jesus says if giving your life for another is on the table, then that means that everything less than that is on the table. Christian love means that I'm considering the needs of my brothers and sisters above my own needs. It means laying down my rights for the good of my brother. That if I can alleviate the suffering of my brother or sister by taking some of that burden onto myself, then I do it. That's what he means by bearing one another's burdens. Christian love is not concerned with what I deserve, because what we recognize that what we deserve is hell, but what we got was grace. And knowing that we've been given a relationship with God in eternity to enjoy that relationship, Christian love means I'm going to pour out my life because I love, and I'm choosing to love. The last thing Jesus tells us is that Christian love within the body is the distinguishing mark of his disciples. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples. If you have a Jesus fish bumper sticker, if you build lavish cathedrals, if you play Christian rap music really loud on your car speakers, No, he says, by this people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's it. That is the distinguishing mark of the church. A place where people love one another in astonishingly ordinary and selfless ways. This is one of the reasons that this fringe sect of Judaism called Christianity took over the pagan Roman Empire in just three centuries. Because a watching world saw genuine, sacrificial love. Though Christians were living in a hostile culture and being violently persecuted, they loved one another to such a degree that people couldn't understand it. And those who were outside the church were invited inside the church, and what they found there was a genuine love that they could not find anywhere else. And the world, dear friends, is still searching for real, authentic Selfless love. Love is the distinguishing mark of those who belong to Jesus. I recognize that that is not always the case in every church. I've been in churches that do this really poorly. And I've been humbled by churches and ordinary Christians who do this really well. But our focus, brothers and sisters, as a church, isn't really on other churches, is it? Our focus is on ourselves, and our question that we have for ourselves this morning is, what kind of church do we want to be here at FBC Medfield? What kind of church are we going to be? Are we going to adopt the consumeristic mindset of our age? We come to church so long as it suits my preferences, if it has the right music, the right kind of people dressed the right way, the right coffee, if the right preaching that isn't too preachy. My prayer for our church is that we can be those who ask not what our church can do for us, but what we can do to love our church and so glorify God. 
How can we invite a world longing to know the affection of their Heavenly Father? How can we invite them to come and experience it in the body of Christ? Now, before we move on to our second point, I would like to do my very best to offend everyone in this room by applying this principle to the realm of politics. We just began an election year. 2020 was a disastrous year for national unity. And where the church had the opportunity to transcend partisan idolatry and division and demonstrate Christian love and unity among division, we largely failed. Now, our church was fine, but back then we also only had like 15 people here. On the whole, churches, denominations, interdenominational cooperation, it's like Satan took a chainsaw and just hacked Christian unity to pieces. Now, I know most of you, and I know that some of you lean left, and some of you lean right, and I know people on both sides who genuinely love Jesus. And that doesn't mean that I think both sides are equally good or equally bad. I have my own political opinions, and I think that people who disagree with me are wrong. <laughs> and you are. But do you know what? Christians can disagree on how best to accomplish good as a nation and even have meaningful discussions with one another without dividing. We can still fellowship and love and covenant with one another because we have the love of Christ. The left wants you lefties to hate righties. The right wants you righties to hate lefties. But Jesus says, the world will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another unless that person is in the NRA, or unless that person likes BLM. Politicians want you to see politics as ultimate. But listen, Donald Trump did not die for you, and you were not baptized into Joe Biden. You have a right to vote according to your conscience. Pretty good, right? <laughs> you have a right to vote according to your conscience. You do not have a right to divide the body which Jesus Christ bought with his own blood. Our eternal citizenship is in heaven, in God's kingdom. We do have a temporary earthly citizenship. God's kingdom is forever, and if history is any guide, our great United States, as great as it is, will one day be gone. Which kingdom are you ultimately living for? The kingdom of God or the temporary kingdom of man? Loving one another still applies even when you think your brother in Christ has dumb political ideas. I'm not a prophet. But I imagine that during this year, 2024, we will have an opportunity as a church to distinguish ourselves in the way that we pursue love over division and the way that we selflessly sacrifice for one another when the world is at each other's throats. And I pray that we can glorify God by pursuing love and unity in Christ. Enough of politics, we'll move on. We've considered the new commandment to love one another. Let us now turn to the same old flesh. Let's see Peter put this command into action. 
Verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Uh, Women are often surprised to find out that most men have, at some point in their life, probably their youth, spent a decent amount of time thinking about the largest animal that we could take in a fight. For myself, uh, I think that I, I'm not joking, to just ask around. Uh, for myself, I think I could probably take a black bear. I draw the line at a grizzly bear unless somebody gave me a tool, like a knife of some kind. Uh, I've even daydreamed about how I would disarm a burglar with kung fu that I've only watched on YouTube. <laughs> now, I understand that some of you are skeptical about what I believe about myself. I, <laughs> I believe very strongly that I could probably take a black bear. I think I could outsmart it. You're probably convinced that there's a disparity between my perception of myself and the reality of what would actually happen if I found myself in that situation. Well, that disparity between perception and reality, who knows if it actually applies in my situation? We may never know. It does, however, apply here at the end of John chapter 13 in Peter's situation. If I could describe these four verses, I would say, good intentions, poor results. I think Peter understands the command to love one another. Love as Jesus is loved. Peter desperately wants to demonstrate his love for Jesus. He says, where are you going? Jesus essentially says, where I'm going, you can't follow now, but you will eventually follow. And Jesus is telling him, look, the, uh, the path to everlasting life leads through death. And for Jesus, that death and resurrection is now God still has work for Peter to do. Peter picks up on the fact that Jesus is heading into trouble. He says, Jesus, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. I really think this is coming from a place of love. There's no doubt in my mind that Peter means every word of what he just said to Jesus. He wants to demonstrate his love and commitment to the master. But as we've already pointed out, there are oftentimes a difference between what you think you would do in a particular situation and what you would actually do in a particular situation. Jesus tells Peter that before the night is even over, he will deny three times that he even knew Jesus. Big talk. No walk. You know the rest of the story. Peter goes on. He stands outside a fire. Little slave girl says, hey, aren't you one of those Galileans? He says, nope. I have no idea who that guy is. Listen, nobody was more rah-rah for Jesus than Peter. And just in sheer character quality, I think Peter outpaces all of us. 
But when the moment of truth came, Peter could not own being a disciple. If you come to the story and you think, wow, Peter is such an idiot, you've missed it. Peter was committed to the bottom of his heart to die for Jesus. Why didn't he? The command to love one another is a big deal. Not one of us on our own is capable of keeping that command, to love as Jesus loved us. You don't possess in yourself the ability to obey that. And if you think you do, you're just walking into the next Peter trap. I think part of the newness of this new command is found in a new blessing which God gave to his people at Pentecost. And this was the new blessing of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You see, Peter on his own could not even own being a disciple before a little slave girl. Peter, after receiving the Holy Spirit 40 days later, stood before all of Jerusalem and proclaimed resurrection of the dead through Jesus Christ. I mean, Peter, with the Spirit, stood before the Sanhedrin and he accused the ones who killed Jesus of killing Jesus. And then they beat him and he still refused to be silenced. And if we're to take early church tradition seriously, Peter, with the Spirit, ultimately did die for Jesus as he was crucified in Rome, upside down, as he didn't want to be killed in the same way as his Lord. Listen, loving one another in the church is not always peaches and cream. It's easy to say. It's hard to do. It is not always easy to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not always easy to love your pastor. And you cannot find the strength to do that within yourself. But praise God that he has not left you to yourself. If you have trusted in Jesus, then you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And by trusting in the Spirit... You can love as Jesus has called you to love. And when you do so, you bring glory to God and demonstrate to the world, this is what God is like. This is what the love of God is like. Setting aside my own needs, setting aside my own rights, and laying down my life for the good of those around me. Come and see the love of Christ made visible and the bride of Christ. But when I began, I chose two dramatically different examples of what is called love. And the reality is that few of us will ever find ourselves on a battlefield risking our necks to save others. Some of you may indeed love in radical ways, but the kind of love that typically makes a difference in our world is ordinary Christian love. The person who recognizes that every day is full of numerous small opportunities to choose Christ-like love over self. The mother who gives more than she thinks she has to raise up godly children and show hospitality. The father who comes home after a long day exhausted from work, but instead of turning on the TV, he gets down on the ground and plays with his kids and he talks to them about Jesus 
The single woman who spends Saturday afternoon studying so she can teach kids at church. The young man who gives up a Saturday morning to fix a widow's car. The college student who finally works up the courage to talk to her dormitory neighbor about Jesus, knowing that she's probably going to be made fun of. None of this is glamorous. None of this will win you a medal of honor or get you published in Christianity Today. But all of these small, ordinary acts of selfless love glorify the Father. And they point people to his love. Let's commit ourselves to being a church characterized by selfless love. Let's pray.